It's really interesting. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Ephesians chapter 4. We're in our last kind of sermon over our community series that we've been going through for the last seven weeks almost now. So uh, we'll wrap that up. Uh, Next week's our Mission Sunday. And then after Mission Sunday, we'll get to our final thing. We've been using this as our model for the year. So life-giving, gospel-rooted, spirit-filled community and belong. And so we'll start our sermon series through belong. That'll carry us up until Thanksgiving. Then it's Thanksgiving. Then it's Christmas. Then guess what it is? 2023. It's right there. I don't know if you're ready for it or not, but it's there. So anyway, so we're continuing on through our series over community. And as I start out, I got two two things I need to say from the get-go. Number one. English language is absurd. I speak it, but I hate it. Number two, your pastor is nowhere near as intelligent as what you may have assumed or thought. And both of those things are pertinent to the start of this sermon. First, English is absurd, right? Have you guys ever had someone ask you like, hey, did you edit that? Like, did you edit that video? And you respond like, yeah, I edited it, it, it. Yeah, I edited it, it, it. Why does our language do stuff like that? I edited it, it, Say that one 15 times fast. That'll be a fun time in the car ride home for your kids. Like, you know, English is ridiculous. And I'm nowhere near as, as intelligent as what you may think. So what we've been doing over the last few weeks is uh, we've been using this theologian. His name's Mark Shaw. His four truths about the Trinity uh, as our model for understanding godly community. So we've talked about how God himself is an eternal community of love, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And then he creates us in his image to reflect those truths in our own community. And so we've taken Mark Shaw's four things and talked about how that should play out in a church community. So we've said, hey, God exists in glad submission. The Spirit submits to the Son who submits to the Father. And so there's glad submission within a community of Jesus. But at the same time, that's never a commentary on equality because there's always full equality. God the Father is still fully equal to the Son, fully equal to the Spirit, fully equal to God the Father. Then last week we talked about how within these triune, this trinity, uh, there is joyful intimacy. There's always this intimacy together. And then over the last few weeks, what I've been saying is, and they also have mutual difference. It is not mutual difference. And the more you think about it, that's kind of an oxymoron. No such thing as mutual difference. It is mutual deference. That's right. There are two English words, one difference, one deference. So cross out difference and put in deference if you have notes in a journal or something. Anytime I said difference, I didn't mean that. I mean deference, right? Jesus' community is a new humanity of mutual deference. Kelsey, you can go and put up the other slide so people don't even see the word difference anymore. Welcome to English. Yeah. So what is mutual deference? Deference, uh, the idea is to respect or think highly of another person. Uh, The way I like to describe it is to celebrate the good in another person. So this is where we get our English word to defer. Right? So if you come to me and you ask me a question I don't think I know the expertise on, I might defer to someone else. And what that is, is it's saying, hey, I don't think I really know all the stuff about this, but I think they're smarter than me, they're a better expert, so I'm going to defer to them. This is the idea of deference in what the Trinity has. So within the Trinity, what this means is, and I'm, I'm going to kind of hyper-characterize this a little bit, but I think there's biblical arguments behind it. If you could somehow go to God the Father, what God the Father would want to talk to you about is he would say things like, hey, have you seen my son? I am so proud of my son. Like, you can't imagine. He lived a perfect life. Did you see? He lived a perfect life, and he gave it up for the world? Like, that's what my son did. Oh, and my spirit. 
Like, have you read Genesis 1 when my spirit was just pushing back the chaos waters and helping me create? Man, my spirit, he lives in the people that believe in me now. He is just radically changing this world. The father would constantly be deferring to the son or the spirit. And if you could go and talk to Jesus, and the cool thing with this one is we actually don't have to go. We can read about the things Jesus says in the gospels. Jesus is constantly saying things like, hey, guys, I'm not even really here to do what I want to do. I hear I do the will of my father. Like he's the one. I just want to follow him all the way. I can't believe it. He loves you guys so much. And I'm here to show you just how much my father loves you. And then there are times that Jesus is like giddy about sending the spirit. He's like, I can't, I can't wait because when I leave, the spirit's going to come. And you think it's been fun with you and I spending three years together? Just wait till the spirit comes. It's going to be so amazing. And then now we live in this stage where the spirit of God lives within us. And the spirit of God is constantly, constantly pointing us back to the father and pointing us to the son to worship and adore and celebrate them. This ideal idea of mutual deference is all over the Trinity. Once again, we're created within that same image. So there's something then life-giving about this idea of celebrating the good in someone else. It's a pretty normal part of humanity. It's one of those things that it transpires across all cultures, transitions, exists, exists will work. It'll exist across all cultures, right? It's the celebration of a birthday party. It's weddings. It's uh, birthdays and births of other families that we've loved. It's retirement parties. It's these types of things where we like to get together and celebrate the existence or the accomplishments of someone else. We love celebrating other people, mostly. Because like anything else, the good gifts that God gives us, we are able to then take, mold it into the way we want it, flip it in on itself, skew it, and make it about something sinful and broken. So this idea of mutual deference is a real thing that we should be doing, but we have this tendency as humanity to mess it up, usually in one of three different ways. The first way is we have this tendency to celebrate evil rather than good. So this is directly in Romans chapter 1. It says this at the end in verse 28. Paul's talking about the culture of Rome surrounding the church. And he says, because they didn't think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they may do what is not right. And they are filled with, and he gives this list, unrighteousness, evil, greed, wickedness, full of envy, murder, quarrels. And he goes on and on and on. And then in verse 32, he says, and although they know God's just sentence, that those who practice such things deserve death, they not only do them, but even applaud those who practice Paul's saying we have this tendency to do mutual deference in an evil way. We celebrate the bad in each other rather than the good in each other. This is the frat guy at the party yelling chug. This is the co-worker telling their person next to him, yeah, you know, your husband really isn't even in control on him. You can have an affair. He doesn't deserve to know any of that stuff. This is for you. You live life the way you want to live life. This is what we do as we skew deference. It's mutual deference, but we worship and idolize the person or the event, or sorry, it's deference, but the deference is a direct celebration of sin and brokenness. Or the other thing that we may do is we over-celebrate. We take deference and we turn it into some form of idolatry. This is making marriage all about the wedding, only to have the actual relationship fall apart a month later because they missed the main point. This is the gender reveal. I saw this on the news this week. This is the gender reveal party. That decide, do you guys know that's a thing now, right? Gender reveal parties. 
um, that decided to dye an entire waterfall blue for the sake of the, they just poured blue dye into a waterfall, right? It's the over-celebration to the point of idolatry, of idolizing that person or that event rather than God who brought it to fruition. Or the third problem is that we just refuse to celebrate others, to look at the accomplishment or the success of another and respond with anger and resentment or disgust. We actually have a word for that. It's an emotion we use to describe it. We call it jealousy. And that's also seen as a bad emotion, as a sinful emotion. It's mutual deference turned in on itself, resulting in misery rather than celebration. And all of these are at play every day of our lives. So the question is, how do we cultivate a community that does mutual deference in a godly, righteous, good way that reflects the model of the Trinity? This is what I want to get to in Ephesians chapter 4 again. So we're back into Ephesians. I won't spend as much time doing setup. If you're interested in all of that, you can go back and listen to previous sermons, Google Podcasts, Spotify, all that great stuff. Just look up First Baptist Portalis. But uh, just so you know, the first three chapters of Ephesians are kind of philosophical. They're the, the big out there way of the gospel of what Jesus has done to rescue us from our sin. Then chapter four through six is the more in the dirt way of focusing. How does this affect our everyday lives? What do we do because of this gospel? Really, most importantly, how does this gospel make us into who Jesus wants us to be? So let me just kick in reading this. I'm going to start in verse one and go through verse 16. Therefore, I The prisoner in the Lord urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace because there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is above all, who is above all and through all and in all. Now, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. For it says, when he ascended on high, he took the captives captive and he gave gifts to people. But what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower parts of the earth? And the one who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens to fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles and some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, some teachers, equipping the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith of the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with stature measured by Christ's fullness. Then we will no longer be like little children, tossed in the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness and the teachings and techniques of deceit. But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head Christ. And it's from him, the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for the building up of itself by the proper working of each individual part. So here's what we're going to do again today. We're just going to do tour guide, walk right through this passage, make some commentaries along the way, and just land right back at this point where we started. Jesus's community is a new humanity of mutual deference. So how do we cultivate this culture of deference? And we have to start in verses 1 through 6, where Paul builds this entire case all about unity. This is really interesting because this is not often the way we frame salvation in, in modern American Western church. In fact, if I were to ask most of you in here, hey, I just got saved, what do I need to do next? Most of the time, our response is going to be on some sort of individual-based level. 
So I just got saved, so what do I do? Well, you need to go to church, and you need to read your Bible, and you need to say prayers. And all of those are good and right things. Those are things that we should be doing, absolutely. But it's really interesting because when Paul looks at this concept of salvation, the first place he lands in application is actually not you go do this, but it's us. Salvation brings it to us, the church, unity, togetherness within all of that. So therefore, I, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to live worthy of the calling you have received. What does worthiness mean? What does it mean to live worthy? It's not all the things that you do. It's living together in unity with all humility. Verse 2, in gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. Paul seems to think that the gospel's first application in this situation is that we've come to relationship with one another and unity with one another. The first application of the gospel is us. And then he moves on to explain why it works this way. He says it's us because this is what reflects who God is as a triune God. And so he's going to say in verse 4 and 6, there's one body and one spirit. Just as you were called with one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God who is Father of all, who is above all, through all, and in all. Now, this is a little bit of your translator's liberty in this, but if you go back and read that passage, you might find three of those words are capitalized. One Spirit, one Lord, and one God the Father. No, it's true. Paul does not use the term Trinity, but Paul is painting the Trinity all over the place within this passage. He's saying we are unified because we have one spirit who is God. We have one Lord Jesus who is God. And we have one God the Father who is God. This is the triune reality that we live in. So how is this body that's in this one triune God going to move and grow and find unity? This is where we get into the ironic part of it all. Because the thing that the Bible talks about is that full unity is what brings authentic diversity. We receive full unity, and out of full unity comes authentic diversity. In the Bible, unity does not mean uniformity. That, that's, in fact, one of the easiest ways to identify a cult, a place that, where they say unity requires uniformity, except for like a special elite person. It's, right, it's like, well, Jethro, you know that none of us are allowed to leave the bunker except Superior Mike over there. He can leave, but that's because God given him a special eye to see the world like no one else can. All of us stay in the bunker and wear the same clothes. That's a cult. Don't do that. Right? That's uniformity. That's not what the Bible's getting at. The Bible wants us to have unity, but it's unity for the sake of diversity, not unity for the sake of uniformity. This is what Paul is going to get at as he builds into all of this. The gospel is not some cult machine where everyone who enters in comes out the other side dressed the same and speaking the same language, following the same traditions. In fact, it's the very opposite. The Bible paints this picture where it's everyone that would go in through this gospel and then they would come out the other side as every tribe, every nation, and every tongue worshiping the true king, the maker of the world within their diversity, within their traditions, within their language, within their dress, whatever it may be. This is the gospel. That diversity comes out of unity. So it's our unity first that then carries us to diversity and it's a diversity that helps us discover deference or differences that we can celebrate in one another. The gifts that we have. You see, your gifts are not discovered in isolation. 
They're discovered within the context of the church. So this is what Paul gets into, verses 7 through 10. So he says this in verse 7. Now grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now already, if we're not careful, we tend to misinterpret this verse because the way we may read, because when we say grace, usually we mean this idea of saving grace, the concept of putting your faith in Jesus for the restoration of your sins and the restoration to God the Father. That is a type of grace. But Paul also can use grace in this other way that isn't about saving. So Paul's not saying, hey, some of you are more saved than some of you others. You need an extra helping of grace to get you saved. So... You let you, that's not what Paul's getting at. We're all equally saved by the cross. We're all equally lost in our own sin. It's grace that saves us. Paul's point is a different kind of grace. It's a grace of your calling. In fact, if you go back to chapter 3, verse 2, what Paul says in that is he says, hey, I'm assuming that you've heard the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. So God gave Paul some special sort of grace to understand and have the talents and knowledge and writing ability for the sake of the Ephesians. So in this estimation, it's not salvific grace, it's what I call vocational grace. When I say vocation, I don't just mean your job. Uh, vocation from the Latin vocatio is, is really more your calling. It's the person God called you to be. It's the things God called you to do to make a difference in the world around you. And the only reason you can make a difference in the world around you is not out of your own talents or your own abilities. It is only ever out of the grace God has first given to you. So this is what Paul's getting at. Hey, we've all been given this different measure of vocational grace, and we're all expected to go use that vocational grace in the church for the glory and the building up of God. So it's not this mystical, uh, you're a teacher, okay, go teach. Uh, you're a preacher, go preach. But it's this idea that God places you in a Christ-focused community. He gives you your dispositions and your personality traits and your talents. And then he uses the church to draw out and sharpen those gifts to use for the kingdom. All of which points back to the purpose of Jesus. Verse 8. For it said that when he ascended on high, he took captives, captives, and he gave gifts to the people. But what does he ascended mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of earth? What Paul's getting at here is he's using this psalm that's talking about ascension. And he says that's in reference to Jesus. And if we follow this kind of logic out, if Jesus, who has always existed eternally God in the farthest reaches of heaven, ascended, that means that before that ascension can happen, he must have first descended. Paul's saying, the way we know this to be true is that the Savior of humanity gave up his place in heaven to step into time, take on the life of mankind, and then give that life up for the salvation of those who would believe in him. Once he did that, he then ascended back to the right hand of the Father. So the reason we have gifts are not of our own talents, but out of the reality that Jesus himself stepped down into time to bring us to this point of salvation. He descends into our own brokenness. He descends into our own world. Jesus seems to think, Paul seems to think, and the Bible seems to tell us that we are incapable of achieving any sort of eternal significance on our own. I know that's the fun thing to like, I am incapable of achieving eternal significance. Put that on my refrigerator, right? Not, not probably a motivational quote you'll see on Facebook today. But outside of Jesus, we cannot make an eternal difference in this world. We live, we die, we're forgotten. There's no eternity. And, and you might be remembered for a couple generations or you might be motivated. They might build a statue, but, I, but I'll tell you, even statue. Okay, 
Some of you will know this answer. I don't. There's a statue that stands in the square just over here of one of kind of the founding people of Roosevelt County. Do you know how much information I know about that person? I, I don't even know the guy's name. I should. I'm sorry. Right? There's forgotten in that. There's not eternal significance in just a name, in just me, in a statue. The only eternal significance that you and I could ever hope for is in the reality of Jesus Christ who comes in and gives us eternal significance to the glory of his name. So he enters our brokenness to give us these giftings for eternal significance. So he goes on to say in verse 11 that Jesus himself, he gives some to be apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. And it's not this exhaustive list. Paul's just demonstrating his point. But in each of these gifts, there's, there's one consistency. That across the board of multiple different gifts, each and every one of them is never for the sake of the individual self. I mean, how are you going to have a preacher that preaches and there's no one that listens to him? That's not much of a preacher, right? A teacher that teaches and no one's around to learn. That's not much of a teacher. These gifts are always for the sake of the church and the gospel. It's gifts for the sake of us. So in that understanding, these gifts are not yours to be leveraged or determined. Yeah, God gave me the gift of generosity, but I don't really think I'm going to practice that because I'm just kind of, I don't really like what's going on here too much. So I'm going to go, it's not your gift to be leveraged. It's God's gift to you to be used for his kingdom, for his glory. Be that preaching, teaching, evangelism, whatever it may be. God wants you to use that for the sake of those around you. So if you're saying, Philip, I don't really know what my spiritual gifting is. Might it be because you've never really had the chance to plug in and serve within a local church? And by the way, if you've never had the chance to plug in and serve within a local church, we have these really cool yellow slips in the pew in front of you. You can just sign that thing and we will find places for you to serve at First Baptist. And here's the cool thing. If you plug in there and you serve in children's ministry for three months, and you're like, I can't, do, I can't do this. This is too much. Cool, we'll find another place. Maybe that's not your spiritual gifting. That's totally fine. But you don't know until you get in and figure it out. God wants to use you within the church with those gifts he gave you. Those are only discovered within the church, never in isolation. See, this is God's model. It's his blueprint. Look at verse 13 through 16. Till we all reach unity in the faith. The idea is that we would all be equipped for the God's given calling on our lives, his vocational grace. And we would start to use that vocational grace to the growth of his kingdom and the church. And when we start to do that, we all, verse 13, reach unity in faith in the knowledge of God's son, growing in maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. That's when we're no longer little children tossed by the waves, blown around by the every wind and teaching by human cunning. Do you want to be a stable foundation church and the reality of God's word, it demands we all use our talents for the kingdom of God within First Baptist Portalis. From him who's the whole body fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament promotes growth of the body for the building up of itself by love and proper working for each individual part. The growth only comes as we trust God with all of this. This is God's model that he would step into time. He would give his life to redeem and save sinners from their own sinful demise. And in doing so, he would restore them back to the perfect Genesis 1 life that he paints, where it's full restoration to God, where there are certain gifts to be used for the furtherment and betterment of God's kingdom. Those gifts are then poured back into the church, which pushes us towards unity and faith, knowledge of Jesus, 
maturity, stability, truth, growth, movement forward. And all of this happens, and as all of this happens, we actually start to learn deference. Because what I learn is you actually bring things to this church that I could never bring to this church. You offer things that I could never offer. You make this place a better place just by being here and glorifying God that I can never actually do in my own power. I might have the title pastor, but I am not what makes this, per- this church great. It's us. It's you. It's you bringing your gifts in because we start to understand that within the differences of our personalities and our histories and our ethnicity and our economic background comes unique giftings that we can build the church up in unique ways. And when that happens, we actually get to start celebrating those differences. That's what we call mutual deference. And Jesus' community is a new humanity of constant mutual deference. This is typically the part where I shift gears and I try to talk about how you should go celebrate others in the church and, and we'll get there. But as I was praying through and thinking about my sermon this week and how I would write it and how I would end it, I thought there's probably a better way than just say, you go do it. Sadly, I can't uh, mention every single person that makes a difference in this church. There are so many of you, and this church could not and would not be what it is without you. If I had the time to do it, we'd be here for three hours. probably don't want that, I understand. But I was thinking this week, what is it that makes First Baptist Church a great church? Because in all honesty, I, I love our stage, and I love our sanctuary. It's good stuff, but none of this makes First Baptist a great church. I don't think I could ever take credit for making First Baptist a great church. It's not possible. You don't know what makes First Baptist a great church? It's Vicki Bannister who answers a call at 3 a.m. from a lady involved with Celebrate Recovery who's been sober for six months but slipped up that night and is now wallowing, not knowing what to do. And so Vicki gets out of bed and loves and serves that person. It's Liz Reese who meticulously puts the perfect lines vacuuming the car. Have you guys noticed the lines in the carpet in here? I mean, it's amazing, right? Like that's, out of making the church look presentable for worship on Sunday morning. It's Larry Teal rekeying a house and inviting that person to come to church, directly allowing us to reach new families in our area in ways that we could never do it. It's Mike Howard partnering with other church ministries in our community, helping us to unite with other churches and knowing that the gospel is not a dividing gospel, but a unifying gospel. It's Cindy Brooks who helps to maintain and uphold financial integrity of the church while she's sitting at home full-time with her husband who's suffering from a debilitating brain tumor. It's Sherry Cooper who gets up at 6 a.m. on a Saturday morning and bakes a casserole for a family she's never met before, but they lost a loved one and she wants to help them. It's Corey Gramzo who swings by the church before he starts his work day to trim the hedges and pull the weeds around the church and never asks for anything in return. It's Wayne Anderson who doesn't just lead music but connects with and loves those who sing with him, that takes college students out to eat, that shows up for their recitals and loves on them. It's Brian Arnold who sits in a room of the church on Tuesday mornings with someone unsure if they're going to be able to keep their electricity turned on and says, hey, I think we can help you. But let me also pray for you and see how I can minister to you above this. It's Kinsey Aguirre who spends all her day with special need preschoolers only to show up Tuesday night to help her husband teach youth. It's Marion Stoyer who dignifies the homeless man who walks into the front office 
And even though he smells like death, she offers him water and a prayer and whatever she can to help him. It's Carson Fraze who sees every person he meets on Eastern's campus as a potential friend that he can invite and tell about Jesus. It's Miss Mary Watts that prays for every single person whose name she writes in her journal. And if you've not got your name in her journal, talk to her. She will write it down right there today. And I promise you she will pray for you every day for the rest of whatever until Jesus comes back. I do not make First Baptist Church great. This building does not make First Baptist Church great. We together, serving our King, make First Baptist Church great, and in the process, bring more of God's kingdom of heaven into Portales. This is God's model for the church. This is what God wants to see happen in his communities, that we would constantly be saying, yeah, 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 maybe I did that, and that's cool, but have you seen what this person did over here? I mean, we could not be this church without them, and look at what they're doing over here, and we're just constantly modeling the Trinity as we give the glory to other people, which really is just giving the glory to God. Look at what God does, constantly elevating and celebrating the work of God in those around us. So what do you need to do? Maybe you're saying, I I need to really figure out my gifting. And the best way to do that is just to come serve. Just plug in. You're like, well, if I come serve, I mean, I feel like every time I do that, I run into conflict. Yeah, that's why Paul starts out in the very beginning of chapter 4. I urge you with humility and gentleness and patience, bear with one another. Paul doesn't seem to think this is actually easy. But he says it's absolutely worth it. So have humility and gentleness, and patience, and serve, and commit a month or two, and then reflect and think, is that really my talent? And if it's not, commit somewhere else to serve a month or two, and just keep doing that, and eventually you'll find a passion that God wants within you to build his kingdom up, even right here at First Baptist. We would love to have you as a part of that. And maybe even before that, you're saying, Phil, that's great, but I don't even know where I stand with God. I mean, I'd love to serve the church, but I'm still trying to figure out what, does God even love me? I mean, look at who I've been in the past. I I don't know. To that, I would just say, the gospel of Jesus has been made so clear that no matter who you are, no matter where you come from, no matter what you do, the God of the universe created you in the image of him with love and dignity. And you may have messed that up. In fact, we've all messed it up. It's a thing called sin. Everyone is equally as guilty of it. But God came to earth to die for you. He wants to redeem you. He wants to see you come back to him. And if you don't know where you stand with God, I'll be right here this morning. I would love to talk to you. If you got stage fright and like, I don't want to go up there, just pull me aside after the service, man. That's fine too. But talk to me about what that means. And maybe you're already out there just serving away. Please know it's not going unrecognized. God is moving, and he's using the things you're doing for the sake of his movement. Thank you for what you do for First Baptist. We're going to have a time as we close out to reflect. Maybe you need to try to just take a few minutes and pray and say, how can I get involved? Maybe you want to come talk to me. Maybe you just need to give glory to the God who uses a church like us. But this is our time to reflect together. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you allow us to be a church of mutual deference. We get to celebrate so much goodness in one another that, God, even when we're broken and even when it seems like things in the world are going awry, that you have still put people in this church to love and serve. God, you are what makes this church a great church. So, God, help us to fulfill that, not by just coming and sitting in pews, 
but by being active in serving the things you do in the growth of your kingdom. God, use First Baptist in incredible ways. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand.